0: This morning we have a guest speaker with us, Joseph Posner, and he's from the what the church called the Christian Center Gospel center sorry in Har- Haringey, that's right and he's a uh, young people's pastor there in the church and we met on an oak hall holiday any, any bit of a any bit of an Oak hall holiday Yes, so we met there and I just uh just connected, and I wanted to invite him here today to speak to us, continuing our series. So let's welcome Joseph here today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Community Church Putney, for having me this Sunday. As Matt said, I'm from a wild and savage place called North London. Uh, And yes, I'm the youth and young adult pastor, so anyone up to about 35. Listen, before I um, say anything else, I just want to open up in a word of prayer so we can come to the Lord Father God, thank you so much for your presence. Lord, I felt it here this morning, Lord. You were with us, and you were amongst us. I pray that we would leave here refreshed, that we would recognize your glory, and you would continue to conform us into the image of your Son every day. We thank you so much, Lord, that you are a living God, you're an active God, and we have a relationship with you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just um, give a bit more introduction to myself. Uh, I'm 29. I have a wife and son who are not here today. My wife said, you know, scope it out first, see if it's okay. I'll come next time. Uh, They're at home. Um, Yes, I'm a youth and young adult pastor. I became a Christian when I was a teenager. And uh, ever since then, really, I've been involved in Christian ministry of some sort, doing different pastoral roles and ministries here and in the States. Um, I recently completed my master's uh, from Spurgeon's College which is in the south, you know, here, south of the river. Um, I'm a published author. I like to write about, uh, I'm really keen on nature and wildlife, and uh, recently have had a book published, and I keep writing. And uh, I love to serve the Lord and meet people and connect with people, so it's a blessing to be here today. <clears throat> I wanted to also, uh, since I've been kindly welcomed here by Matt and Helen, just say a word about uh, Matt and the family. A wonderful welcome. Thank you so much, but... As Matt said, we met on a bus to Oak Hall, a coach. Uh, sometimes I get my Americanisms uh, twisted up, so ignore me if that happens. We met on a coach to Oak Hall. And uh, if you guys have been on one, you'll know that every Oak Hall holiday has a designated what you, spiritual person, leader. Um, I brought my friend with me on a trip, and um, he wasn't a believer. He didn't know the Lord at the time. And I was explaining to him that on every trip there is a spiritual leader, a pastor. That's that's the word I used. Uh, And he said, well, what is that? And I had to literally explain it to him. When we was on the bus, we was meeting some different people. We was on the lower deck and, um, you know, making acquaintances. And my friend was asking, where's the pastor? About maybe, was it half an hour later, uh, Matt came through the bus introducing himself to everyone, And he didn't say that he was the pastor, he just shook our hands and, you know, asked what our names were, a bit of small talk, as pastors are experts in. And um, when he left, I looked at my friend and I said, that's the pastor. And he said, how do you know? He didn't even say anything. I said, just trust me, that's the pastor. So I just want to commend you, Matt. (laughs) No, 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 honestly, in a good way. But it was just Matt's approach. You could immediately tell his heart, his demeanor, you know. A pastoral person, a man of God. So, you know, know, not to go off on some lavish uh, adoration or love story, but just to say that, you know, you guys got a good one here at the church and uh, make sure you take care of him. So, yeah, that's that. I just want to say uh, one more thing. Uh, I came to this building back in, I think it was October or September. It's a good, nice building, uh, not too dissimilar from our own. Um, When we were on the trip... In France, uh, we went to a town, a city called Strasbourg. Maybe some of you have been there, right on the border with Germany. Nice place. And there was this wonderful, dramatic cathedral. It's always amazing to see these, you know, Gothic architecture. I've seen the one in Barcelona. Uh, Typical characteristics of um, the Catholic faith and Orthodox churches. We have one near us. And they have so many different things, like spires and gargoyles and whatever. But, you know, the one thing you can always count on in in a Protestant church is a clock directly opposite the lectern because we like to talk, we like to go on. So I bear that in mind, I take the hint. It doesn't work, okay. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Okay, all right, all right then. I'll have to be extra disciplined. But we have a clock directly opposite our lectern. Okay, all right then. So you see me looking there, you know what's up. Anyway, without any further ado, let me go into it. So we are going through this book here. The Prayers of Many by Mike Betts. I like it. It's a good book. Uh, Just a disclaimer, I'm a book reviewer, so you may find that come out in my um, sermon. But I genuinely like this book. I think it's straightforward. He makes some good, clear points. There isn't too much waffling in here. It's got good, accessible language for everyone to read. And he's making a profound point. Praying together. Also called corporate prayer. Now this is... A pattern that we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts. We are called by God to pray together as a family and as a church. And no doubt, I'm sure that you can agree with me on this one. When you pray with other people, there's something different about it than when you pray by yourself. So no doubt, it is a part of our lives that God has commissioned. So we're moving on to chapter 2. If we could just uh, move that slide over. Chapter 2 is what we are looking at today, and it is entitled, uh, not to worry, it is entitled Ditches. Chapter 2 of the book is called Ditches. I had a good read of it, I read it again when I was on the train coming here. But first of all, let me just recap on some stuff that Matt discussed from chapter 1. Introducing corporate church, as Matt said, very simply, the church praying together. Matt mentioned being convinced about it, being convinced about the need and the benefits of corporate prayer. Well, if we need any more convincing, we just need to look to the life of Jesus, the early church, and the apostles to see the life that they led. Matt said that the tenor of our life should be, I will make it. The tenor, I love that. The tenor of our life should be, I will make it. We all live busy lives. You know, when I was a teenager in ministry, when I was first starting out and even going into my early 20s, I often would put on events and, you know, do things like praying together and some people said, oh, I can't make it. I've got to do stuff with my kids and so on. Or, you know, I've got to go and do this with work. And at the time I just figured, surely it's not that difficult. Surely you can just come to our prayer session. But then I went on later into my life, into my late 20s, and I had kids. I'm like, okay, now I understand where they're coming from and I get it. And life got got a bit busier. But Matt said the tenor, the baseline of our approach should be I will make it. So even if you can't actually make it, you still have the attitude that I will make it. And that attitude will carry you to make it when you can. And that's a bit, I'm going to expand on that a bit today while I go through chapter two, Ditches. Matt also talked about humbling himself and ourselves. And that is, of course, key. We always need to humble ourselves before we come before God so that he can fill us with his spirit and with his presence. So, if session one introduced the concept Session two is establishing, or chapter two rather, is establishing the blueprint. You know, uh, an architect or a surveyor or whatever goes to a plot of land and they say, I'm going to build a hotel here. Or, You have to lay out the architectural plans and you have to begin to think about how. How am I going to make this work? How am I going to build this building? And for us, chapter two, moving on through Mike Betts' work is how am I going to begin to commit to corporate Prayer. prayer. How am I going to establish this in my life? How am I going to join my brothers and sisters? How? And I want to make some practical points about how we put the gears in motion. Betts, he does make a few hints. He begins to talk about some practical, logistical points. He makes a pretty extensive point about music on page 17. If you read it, you'll know. Um, And I agree with him. I'm not going to speak about that much today. But he says, you know, when we come to, Together, in corporate prayer, music is a good idea because it invites the presence of God. And so he begins to make some practical points. But what I want to do today more is um, actually think about the mental side of things. Our mental and spiritual approach. Of course, there are practical things that we need to overcome. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, everyone's life is different. If I stand up here before you today, and make a list of things that you need to do, that you need to adjust in your life, so that you can commit to corporate prayer, it's unlikely to have much of an effect. Because everyone is dealing with different things. And so I think the layer beneath that, the layer of belief, our practical activity, is our approach. Our approach to corporate prayer, how? Do we have the mindset? Let me go into what Betts said to provide a bit more clarity. So, uh, can I have the um, main verse, um, the verses up from Kings, please? And we are actually going from the NASB. So, I'm going to read it from the screen with you. So, here are the portions of scripture that Betts summarizes in his work. So, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And they made a circuit of seven days' journey. But there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. And then later on in Kings. And he said, this is Elisha, the prophet Elisha speaking, apprentice of Elijah. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of trenches. For the Lord says this, you will not see wind, nor will you see rain, Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you will drink, you, your livestock, and your other animals. And this is an insignificant thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city, and cut down every good tree, and stop up all the springs of water, and spoil every good plot of land with stones. Right? So Betts is using an illustration here about digging ditches our experience is obviously different from the kings here in the book here they're talking about battle about coming into conflict whereas we're talking about corporate prayer so we have to take what betts is saying as an illustration for our situation i mean you know i hope that none of us are planning to strike any fortified city and have, you know i don't know maybe some of you have had enough with hs2 construction and you want to go plow into it or you know these new builds that are coming across London's skyline. You know, there's some near me. I think they, they're nice. But we are not looking to fortify anything or cut down anything. We're looking to dig ditches so that God can fill them. That is what Betts is getting at. That is why he uses this illustration. Now, Betts uses this illustration of digging ditches because it's hard. It's hard to, get, to dig a ditch. And we don't have to use our imagination too deeply here this is a big ditch that he's talking about. This is not a cat digging in a litter tray, or you know, a, a, a child digging in a sand, for a sandcastle. This is a big ditch to fill, like an aquifer, to fill with water. That's a difficult thing to do. That takes a lot of time, especially with the rudimentary equipment that they would have had. So Betts's main point here is that we need to be committed. We need to be in this together, we need teamwork, and we need to persevere. So what I'm trying to do here today with my message is to make some practical points on how we can build that commitment. How can we come to a point where we're like, okay, I know this is going to be difficult. I know that corporate prayer is not easy. I know that these ditches are not going to spring up overnight. But how can I come to the point where I'm committed to doing that? Let me just turn my page over here. How do we persevere in corporate prayer? How do we commit to building these ditches? As I said, I want to suggest that yes, there are some practical points that we all need to address, such as our time, commitments, our daily lives, and our schedules, and so on and so forth. But I want to talk more about our approach, the layer beneath that. And let me suggest that I think a really good place to start a really good point of reference for us in this area of building these ditches, of committing to corporate prayer, we can find in the early church. Of course, the early church was not perfect. They were dealing with their own things. But let me suggest that the early church, number one, it wasn't long since Jesus had departed. So their words were reverberating. His words were reverberating in their head. And number two, let me suggest that they had a bit less to distract them. We live in such a complex time with all manner of things and interests and hobbies. The information age, we have so much going on. But the early church were very much devoted to seeking God. So, in Acts one fourteen, if that comes up, if it does, it does. If it doesn't, don't worry, just follow along with me. In Acts one fourteen, we see the early church Gather together and they're beginning to establish this culture of corporate prayer. Acts 1.14 says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We can learn a lot from that one verse. Let me read it again and you'll have to forgive me I'm being a bit of a naughty boy because this is actually also from the NASB. I just felt that it caught the verse a bit better. So I will get to the NIV. I will use the NIV eventually. Uh, but this comes from the, this um, translation of Acts 1.14 comes from the NASB. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There is a lot in there that we can learn from, just from those implications. And I, fi- I feel that it forms some practical points. That can help us on the way to building this mindset of commitment and perseverance that Betts is trying to establish when he talks about digging ditches. For me, the first thing that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to corporate prayer, praying together, and to be honest, any type of prayer, what is it that we expect God to do? What exactly? Do we expect him to fill the ditches with magic Christian juice or water? What do we expect? Revival? Greater worship? Greater spirituality? You know, Bex, Bex he does hint at some things, and you have to forgive me here. Uh, this is where my book reviewer comes out. I think in some points... Uh, He makes some very helpful points. He says, we're filling the ditches with a move of God. Now, to me, it's a bit vague. A move of God. What is a move of God? Is it people coming to know him? Is it, you know, seeing more of a Christian influence in our political arena? I mean, that's a big question and perhaps a topic for another day, but it really helps us to have a clear, concise focus when we are praying. What are we praying for? And Betts does make some other points, which I feel are helpful. On page 16, he says, when we come together to seek God. On page 16, he says that, and for me, that is the starting point of all prayer, individual or corporate. I believe that the early church understood this. The pattern of prayer that we see throughout the book of Acts is centered on God, is centered on him. We see examples, and don't get me wrong here, there are times when we can agree to pray together for something specific. Helen, you mentioned something in the notices, didn't you? Was it for more people coming to healing? Healing. God wants us to do that. God wants us to address certain points. In fact, in the early church, right after this, uh, right after the passage in Acts 1.14, the apostles come together to pray specifically for a new disciple. You remember that you know, Judas left and then they need to institute someone else, Matthias. They pray together for that specifically. So, of course, there are going to be moments when we say this is what we're praying for. But, but what we shouldn't do is pigeonhole or generalize all of corporate prayer. As corporate prayer is for this, and individual prayer is for this. And I believe that the early church understood this. The early church understood that Christian, that corporate prayer was about seeking God. Now at the end of the day, if we go down this path of saying, you know, corporate prayer is for revival, or corporate prayer is for, you know, a move of God, so to speak. What we're in danger of, then, is making corporate prayer corporate. What do I mean by that? Well, there are different, you know, uh, separate definitions of the word corporate. In our context, we're talking about corporate as togetherness, but we also know the word corporate has another meaning, which is essentially marketing, a board, a brand. If we turn our corporate prayer into a corporate exercise, we brand it, we pigeonhole it, we marginalize it. Corporate prayer is for revival. And let me suggest that when we go too far down this path, that is when our commitment eventually begins to wane. No, our commitment is to be built on seeking God in general, in corporate prayer. Within that, We come together to pray about specific things. But in general, our overall approach is about seeking God. I believe that the early church knew this. I believe this is how they dug their ditches. And, you know, um, we can actually look earlier than the book of Acts to gain some insight into this, into how, you know, we can expect to find that the early church prayed. I can't remember if I, I believe this should come up, But if you're there in the Bibles, and I am using the NIV now, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. Matthew 6, 9 to 13. In his uh, message last week, Matt said that when he first became a Christian, he had the Lord's Prayer memorized. It's a great prayer. It's a great prayer. It's a good one to have memorized. And now we know that, you know, in different um, Christian uh, movements, the prayer has become liturgical. And, you know, I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think that can be a good thing. But I do think that as a result of that, the effect and the impact of this prayer has become a bit lessened. Because what is Jesus actually saying here in the Lord's Prayer? He's not saying, say this every day, you know, before breakfast or whatever. What Jesus is trying to teach us through the Lord's Prayer is a template. It's a template for why we pray. Now, remember, who was it? Uh, Was it Peter that went up to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray? What did he say? Teach us. Us how to pray. He didn't say, teach me how to pray. Teach us how to pray. So in this moment, when Jesus is presenting the Lord's Prayer, when he's replying to, I think it was, you uh, you you can check me on that. I think it was Peter. He's responding to a group. The group of the disciples that are with him. So therefore, biological deduction, when we're in a group, our prayers should imitate something like the Lord's Prayer. Because that is Jesus. That is how Jesus taught us how to pray. That is directly from the source. And I can only imagine then that the early church, the apostles, still had these words ringing in their ears as they joined together to dig ditches, to persevere. So if you could um, go uh, to verse 6 then. Uh, Verse 9, sorry. Move forward to verse 9. Okay, hold it there. So let's go through it. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay, that's moving away from the prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer do? Let me suggest this. Anything you ever pray, anything you ever pray will be covered by the Lord's Prayer. First two lines. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When we come to prayer, I know when I come to prayer, you know very first, the often thing I first do is praise God. Thank you, Lord, for my life. Thank you for who you are. We come to him in adoration and praise. That should be a hallmark of all of our prayers and our prayer life, and of course, corporate prayer. The second line. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So think about this. When we join together to pray for healing, to pray for revival, to pray for Christian influence in politics, what is it that we often say at the end? Lord, if it's your will. If it's your will. We can't force revival, we can't force healing. It's the Lord's will. The The Lord's prayer has it covered. So this, the first stanza, if you like, the first section is very much about seeking God, honoring God, knowing God. The first part of the Lord's Prayer. The second part, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Is about living a God-honoring lifestyle. So we have these two things. If we were to summarize the Lord's Prayer, not that it needs more summarizing, but if we were to summarize it and make it even simpler, we'd say the first part is about seeking God. The second part is about living for God. Anything you ever pray will somehow fall into that arena in so many words. Of course, you know, I like to talk to... I'm not saying that we should necessarily simplify how we pray And boil it, you know, move over the more minute points. Um, When I, I like to talk to God about all types of things. If I'm playing a particular video game, I say, look, God, I made it to this level last night. You know, I'm I'm making real progress. Or sometimes, you know, I say, Lord, uh, I I slept kind of well last night. You know, if God was ever to ask me first, how did you sleep? Maybe another time I'll say, terribly. My son was crying every single hour. We have another one on the way, by the way, so it's going to get even more intense. I like to conversate with God. That's fine, of course, we are going to do that. We're human beings. We know that we have a relational journey with the Lord. But the point that Jesus is making here is that anything you ever pray is covered here in the Lord's Prayer. Is what you're praying about moving in that direction? Are we praying to seek God and live a life for him? That is what the Lord's Prayer teaches us. That is the vibe of the early church. That is why they pray together. That is how they dug ditches. So let me suggest then, going back to Betsy's point about digging ditches, what are we filling those ditches with? More of God. More of God. You could respond to me, that's a bit vague in itself. What do you mean, more of God? But at least we're seeking a person and not a thing. Not turning our corporate prayer into corporate, corporation, so to speak. We're seeking God. And that's as simply as I can put it. So that is point one. Practical points on how. How to establish these blueprints of how to pray together. What do we expect God to do? What, do we, what are we praying for? For more of God. And look, check this out. When we have that attitude, when we have that approach, the other things will come. The other things will tag on. Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. The early church. With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts and to break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and... The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And. So when we seek God for who he is, these other things will come along. The revival that we're seeking, that we want. Political change that we want to see. First we come to God, to know God. That is the hallmark of the Christian life. And it is the encapsulation of our prayers. We pray to know God. And of course, in doing that, we will become missionally moved. We can't help but know God and then want to take his life and his love out into the world to love people and to share the gospel. It's like our hearts are overflowing. We're just burning to share what we have. That is what the love of God and the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. I want to make a few more practical points that establish these blueprints that hand us the shovel, as it were, to dig these ditches. And they are also things that I feel we can learn from the early church. Now, I have no doubt that what I'm going to say or some of the things that I'm saying will overlap with points in later chapters. Uh, but so be it. I'll try not to um, you know, preach someone else's sermon. The second point, so the first point is we pray to know God. That's what we do in corporate prayer. The second point is this that I feel we can learn from the early church. Are we in fellowship with those we are praying with? I'm going back to Acts 1.14. It says these, in the NASB these all with one mind Were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That is a pretty one mind. In our time, like no other time, there are so many cultures, approaches, preconceived notions, opinions. These things aren't inherently wrong, but it does perhaps breed the grounds for dispute a bit more. The point is that God wants us to be together. When we're praying, it's no good having dissension, having disputes with our fellow brothers and sisters and then coming to pray together. If you come to church on a Sunday, you know, I'm not sure about that person or, you know, this happened at our house study, uh, this person interrupted me at our house study, I'm not sure if I like them anymore, so on and so forth. Disagreements. Going as far as dislike of our fellow brothers and sisters. We are to be the light of the world. Jesus said, this is how they will recognize you when you love one another. So this is a consistent point throughout Scripture as well. We're to love one another, to care one another and to lay aside our disputes. That can be a difficult thing to do but we see it all throughout Scripture. If you have an issue with someone in the church, in the fellowship, go to them. Try and sort it out. If you can't, Bring two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, take it before the whole church. This is real. This is what the Lord tells of us. This is what he hopes can build our unity, can establish this commitment. Because, yes, the object of why we're praying is to know God. But we have to be together as a unit before we can do that effectively. And we see an indication here, That, as we said, the early church was not perfect. You know, we're not glorifying them and exalting them. But they understood this because they were in one mind. It's no good praying with people that we don't want to be in a room with. The Hernhut, I tried to uh, make sure that I could pronounce this properly before I came. The Hernhut settlement in Saxony, Germany, was a Moravian community. In 1727, so going back to the 18th century, uh, there was a a small church establishment, a small church community of about 300 people. And it was wrapped. And this is according to Christian um, historian A.J. Lewis, was wrapped by dissension and bickering. That summer of 1727, Nicholas Zinzendorf, a Moravian priest, and some others decided, look, we need to pray. We need to come together and seek God to move past this stage. The result of that meeting, the result of that eventual coming together, was a round-the-clock prayer watch that continued non-stop for over a hundred years. A hundred years, this Moravian community in in Hernhut, Saxony, prayed. So, what is that? Two generations have gone by, and they're still praying. By uh, 65 years after the... By 1791, 65 years after the commencement of that initial um, meeting, the small Moravian community had sent 300 missionaries to the end of the earth, to different places. So there we have it. There we see it in action. We come together to seek God and the other things. Tag along. The missionaries. The revival. The point is... That once that dissension, once the bickering was rooted out, once the subtle dislike of our brothers and sisters was rooted out, we can seek God effectively. We can pray corporately effectively. That will help us to dig the ditches, to find the moves of God, to see the moves of God. That will help us to build a commitment and a perseverance. A.J. Lewis summarizes the Moravian community. He says, For over a hundred years, the members of the Moravian church all shared in the hourly intercession at home and abroad on land and sea this prayer watch ascended unceasingly to the Lord. Amazing. So the bickering was put to one side and they came together in corporate prayer to know God, to seek Him. And as a result, we saw ditches filled. We saw commitments built And we saw perseverance. A hundred year perseverance. So that is the second point then. The first point. We pray together to know God. The second point. Are we in fellowship with those we are praying with? These two things are going to help to establish a commitment. Teamwork is a pretty simple concept. Let's not forget it. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a football referee. Uh, it's helpful with our monthly, you know, I get a, a decent income from it to support our young family. Yesterday, I was refereeing a, a kids game under 12, and one um, of the Wonder teams was, it was 6-1, I think it was, at that point. Uh, and at that point, you know, as a referee of kids, you're trying to, like, delay the game to make sure that it doesn't get demoralizing and so on and so forth, you know, within reason, of course, you have to do it fairly but one of the kids, I heard him say under his breath, oh, we're 6-1 up. I'm going to score now. I said to, him, I, I said to him, hey, it's about teamwork. So this is when I went into coaching mode. You know, the game was pretty much done. It was already won. It's about teamwork. He said, yeah, but my, my, my teammates don't care about teamwork. They're all trying to score as well. I said to him, listen, my friend, the higher you go up in the football ladder, the less that, the less that attitude is going to carry you. You're going to get a rude awakening if you ever go into an academy. Oh, it was pretty good. Maybe you can get fairly far. We have to buy in to teamwork. We have to realize its importance. And that leads me on to the third point. The third point is fairly similar to the second, albeit with a slightly different approach. The second point, are we in fellowship with those we are praying with? The third point, do we buy in? Matt um, spoke about this in the first uh, message. Are we convinced about it, about corporate prayer? Do we buy in? Is our commitment flaky or is it real? Do we really believe that if we join together in a team, if we put aside our bickering and our disputes, if we seek God for God, do we believe, do we buy into the fact that we will dig ditches and see God move? that we will see more of God. Now, I'm going to make a point here. And Matt touched on this in his first message as well. The Western church is weak in this regard. Now, we don't need to beat ourselves up about it, you know. We're all, uh, you know, we're faithful believers. We know the Lord, and that's great. But the Western church is less communal. That's just a straight fact. The Western church is less communal than any other part of the world. And I want to make this point. Um, I'm pretty keen on history. I like anthropology and human history. Some of you out there may dispute me. I don't know what your lines of work are. But let me make this point and suggestion. Our society, the Western, capitalist, democratic, free world, whatever you want to call it, our society is the most individualistic society in human history. The most, in- we live for ourselves more than at any other point. What are your rights? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? You can dispute me on that, but I think even if we're not the most, we're somewhere high up the leaderboard. That is at odds with what we see in the New Testament, with the Gospel Church, with the Book of Acts. We need to buy in to our community, understand its value understand its purpose, and understand how, as a group, we build a commitment. As Betts made the point, digging ditches is hard. It's not easy. You're not going to be able to do it by yourself. It takes a team. Do we accept that? Do we see the need to build something bigger? Acts 2.42, so again, going back to the early church, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers they devoted themselves to fellowship devoted themselves to fellowship now devotion sometimes sometimes takes sacrifice commitment so on and so forth but they took it very seriously being a community much more seriously than we take it in the western church let me um I'm not going to bring up the passage because it's rather long, and I'm probably not going to read all of it either. But I want to go elsewhere in the book of Acts, which illustrates just how seriously they took it. Maybe I'm I'm guessing that many of you will know the passage. Acts 5, 1 to 11. As I said, I'm not going to read all of it. A man named Ananias, together with with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest And put it at the apostles' feet. So this, just to provide some context, this is at a point where the apostles are selling their possessions, putting everything into a type of communal pot so that everyone has enough to live on. But a man has decided to go against the grain and keeps back part of the money for himself. Peter says to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to humans, but but to God. And now uh, the next verse that I'm going to read perhaps provides a... uh, owes to a longer discussion and uh, understanding and unwrapping, but I'll also say it bluntly, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. This was the purity of community that we see in the book of Acts. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Now it doesn't tell us you know, if it was God, that ordained this act it doesn't tell us you know if it was something that Peter oversaw it doesn't give us that information but at least we can recognize that what the book of Acts is telling us here is that this is very serious strength of community teamwork coming together and in our western church we are far removed from this and as I said we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves We shouldn't beat ourselves up because the reality is that our culture is ingrained in us from over centuries you know ever since the 17th century with the enlightenment individualism we've constantly been taught how to live a certain way how to think a certain way so when we come to scripture when we come to the bible and the gospels we're having to reverse that to renew our minds was it romans 12 verse 2 renew your minds and that is what God calls us to when it comes to corporate prayer, to buying in. The disciples were of one mind. Do we recognize the importance, the criticalness of our church community? You know, I once, um, I once actually worked down here in South London. Crazy. I should have stayed in North London. Joking. I once worked down in South London in a, in a church called All Saints Peckham. Um, a large Anglican church, and someone there told me a story uh, about a family who had looked at this passage in the book of Acts, Acts 5, 1 to 11, about Ananias and Sapphira and the community, and they said, you know what? I'm going to take this seriously. This was two families. They both sold their houses and bought a bigger house and moved in together, raised their families together, ate meals together, made daily schedules and plans together sounds crazy doesn't it sounds so radical but should it be just think how different things were then and now think about the things to us that seem so alien going a bit further back we see in, Levit- in Leviticus the year of jubilee all uh, possessions um, properties Are returned to their ancestral owners during the year of Jubilee. Imagine you said to everyone right now in the Western world, hey, your properties are being taken from you. And the years that you've spent saving up for a deposit, getting on the housing ladder. Now, of course, the year of Jubilee is a different context, a different time. We don't have to apply it directly to our daily lives. But it does give us an idea of the tone, of the emphasis that God places on community that we see here in the early church. And as I said, we have to bear context in mind. No, we don't necessarily have to sell our houses and move in with others. But we do have to recognize the importance of community. We do have to buy in to build this commitment, to build this perseverance. I'm coming into land now, as my uh, pastor says. Three points which I believe will help us in digging these ditches in persevering, in building a commitment. The first point is, we pray to seek God. We don't turn our corporate prayer into a corporation. We pray for God, the other things will be added on. The second point, are we in fellowship with those we are praying with? The third point, do we buy in? Do we accept the need for community and see it as important? I wasn't quite ready, but uh, I will uh, speed it up. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, despite the seemingly natural element of praying together, our contemporary church find it difficult. It is, in fact, the most normal thing in the common Christian life, to pray together. I don't think he was saying here that it's something that we do normally every day. I think what he was trying to say is that it should be the most normal thing to our hearts and minds to pray together because that is what God has called us to. As with all things, and I turn uh, back now to the Lord's Prayer, where did we learn this from? Christ is our teacher. We looked at Jesus for our example, for our template. He's the one who leads us and guides us through the Holy Spirit and he brings us back to seeking God. That is what we're going to fill these ditches with. That is how we build this commitment of corporate prayer. That is what will help us to assess the practical points of our lives when we have a mental and a spiritual approach of I'm going to get more of God when I pray with my brothers and sisters who I like and who I'm going to sell my house to move in with. (laughs) The early church was centered on God. They seeked God. And because of that, They were able to build a lasting commitment and dig ditches. Christ taught us. He's our example and our guide. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Father Lord, thank you so much, Lord, that you want us to be a community. Lord, you're the designer of community. You establish life to be lived together on our own, but on our own together. We're individuals, but we only fully reach our potential as individuals when we're in a group, loving you and seeking you. Lord, you're the one who blesses us, who guides us and leads us. I pray that we would fully understand the weight of community, of what we can do as a church, of how much we can know of you when we come together. Thank you so much, Lord, that you give us the resources, that you give us the ability in our land, in our nation, that we're able to meet together, God. And I pray that we would take full advantage of that, Lord. And Lord, most of all, let our prayers when we come together, our corporate prayer be about seeking you. Lord, it's well within our remit to pray for specific issues such as uh, revival. But Lord, we know that our baseline approach is to know you and you will bring these things, God. That will bring us closer together. It will bring us closer to you and it will fill the ditches. So I just pray for everyone here in the week ahead that as we begin to build our image and our understanding of corporate prayer, Lord, that your presence and your spirit will guide us into all truth so that we may know you.